If you have a Bible with you, open please to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, or you can follow along in the bulletin, the same text is printed there, Luke 18. The parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, or if you're old, the publican and the Pharisee, like the King James used to say. Luke 18. Don't you just hate smokers? Don't you just hate parents who can't keep their kids under control in the store? Don't you hate Democrats? Don't you hate CrossFit people? <laughs> the worst. Don't you hate Armenians? Um, take Trumpers, people that watch Fox News. Huh. Don't you hate Muslims? You hate Kenny Chesney fans. <laughs> Lazy, stupid co-workers. What about the people that go down the right lane, right up behind the truck, when the rest of you are waiting in the fast lane, and they just cut in on somebody where there's not room. Don't you hate those people? The worst. Don't you hate braggarts? Don't you hate people that misuse the reflexive pronoun? That may just be me. Um... <laughs> Contempt. Delicious, delightful contempt. Nothing feels as good as contempt. <laughs> Holding other people in contempt feels so good. It feels so justifying to us. Uh, it's wonderful. I've been having to pay attention to this all week, and I'm shot through, I would say, after my week's observation with contempt. Uh, every other thing I think or say is contemptuous of somebody. We've got this parable that we're going to look at in which Jesus says that contempt is a window into your soul. Because when you see yourself holding other people in contempt, um, it's a symptom of self-justifying pride in your life. And is a much bigger problem than it feels like it is. Right? A much bigger problem because not only does it uh, jack up most all of your relationships with other people, but it really cuts you off in your relationship with God and His grace. Self-justifying pride that shows up in contempt. So we got this parable where you have one person who is uh, totally immoral. He's a thief, an extortioner, he's treasonous, he's a despicable person, and he goes to church and is approved and received. And then you have a really good person who's very diligent as a religious person. He's uh, very generous with his money. He's very observant of spiritual disciplines and things. And he goes to church and is rejected, which is bizarre to any religious sensibility. And we're going to look at why tonight. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, I pray that you would uh, come and open our hearts to you. I pray that not only would we... Um, be able to see ourselves more honestly, but especially I pray that we'd be able to see your grace more clearly, uh, to feel your welcome, to feel your approval, uh, to feel what it means to be right with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me beginning at verse 9 of Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. C.S. Lewis was uh, thinking about this parable and looking at cats and dogs. And he said, uh, this is in the letters from an American lady, for those of you who are C.S. Lewis people. Uh, he said, he realized looking at cats and dogs that cats and dogs both have consciences. He says, uh, dogs have a bad conscience, and therefore they are humble and honest. Right? But cats have a good conscience, and therefore they say, thank you, Lord, that I am not like these dogs or these humans or even as these other cats. Right? Uh, cats are Pharisees, and there's a lot of cat in most all of us. Right? Because we compare ourselves, we make judgments, we measure, we hold others in contempt, and we justify ourselves uh, in comparison to other people. Right? It's uh, common to man. Everybody does this. You don't have to be religious to do it. It's especially problematic in religion. But uh, we lived in Oregon for about five years, and one Super Bowl Sunday, we went on a hike which seemed like a weird thing to do on a Super Bowl Sunday to me, but I made sure we were going to be back in time, you know, because the sun's only up for like three hours in February anyway. So we're going to be back in time for the game, but as we're walking back in from this hike into the house, somebody that I just met on the hike says, uh, you know, coming in from this hike and thinking about people all over America sitting on their couches watching television just makes me feel so righteous. <laughs> I thought... Okay, that's probably the most precise theological use of that term I've ever heard. Right? That's exactly what the Bible's talking about when it talks about righteousness. It makes me feel righteous that I can justify myself from my hike and hold every couch potato in America in contempt. Uh, that's not strange to us, but when it comes to God, it's really problematic because um, it cuts us off from His grace, from His mercy, which is how He deals with us. Um, there's something innate in us. I don't know. You never have to be taught it to assume it, but you just assume God likes good people. God likes good people, and if I'm a good person, God will like me. If I'm extra good, God will like me extra. And the Bible doesn't say this, but it seems true. It seems uh, finds reflection in every religion that people have made up on earth. God likes good people. And we say, well, I'm, it's pretty good news because I'm a good person. Uh, we tend to be pretty generous estimating our own goodness. There was a uh, psych experiment somebody did. And if you're a student, don't, don't sign up for the psych experiment. I mean, they may give you five bucks, but the shame is not going to be worth it. Don't sign up for the psych experiment. But they did the psych experiment. And they, they asked people to come in and rate themselves, you know, kind of percentage-wise, one to a hundred. Uh, where... Where do you rate as far as someone who is able to get along easily with other people? How well do you get along with other people? Rate yourself. 
so the top 10 percentile, uh, 60% of the people put themselves in the top 10, right? so, which is a little delusional. More strikingly than that, uh, the top 1 percentile, 25% of the people rank themselves in the top 1% in terms of ability to get along with others. So uh, we have a skewed view of how good we are. We have a notion that God would like us because he'll accept our view of how good we are. And uh, you can't be around Jesus very long before that stuff starts to erode because he doesn't believe it. He calls it heavily into question in this parable because he holds out in front of us a person who's way better than you, I promise. The Pharisee is legitimately better than you are morally. You know, the fasting twice a week, I mean, I guess you could do that, but I bet you don't. And uh, uh, tithing assiduously on everything you get, I'm, I, know, I know for a fact, because in the early days of the church plan, I know who's given what. <laughs> so he's an uh, exceptionally good person, um, but he's persuaded that he's a great person, good enough for God to hold him in high esteem and favor. And Jesus calls that out in this parable. You know when, when someone attacks your sense of self-justification, your sense of why you're such a good person, if someone criticizes you in an area where you think you're pretty good, or if they just use faint praise to speak of you, when you're justifying yourself, that's almost intolerable. You know, it's, uh, it's the stuff that keeps you up at night thinking, how could they have said that? Because you're always insecure if you're justifying yourself. I think, I think I'm better than these people. I despise them. I hold them in contempt. And I think I'm a good person. But you know deep down, if you get down to the level of motives and things, the story's not so good. So you're always insecure and defensive if you're justifying yourself. You're always spinning your conversations. Always inserting little resume items into the conversation just to make sure everybody knows how awesome you are. Make sure they know if you went to a good school. Make sure they know if you're a good athlete. Always, you know, you're always slipping in and spinning in conversation because you're insecure if you're self-justifying. And so Jesus just, you know, pulls the curtain back on that with us and says, "Look, this uh, self-justification project isn't going to work with God." But he gives the story. The story's crazy. It's supposed to be crazy. It's supposed to be shocking. Uh, we're used to thinking of Pharisees as bad people, but nobody then was. Um, and really. If we knew them, we wouldn't have thought of them as bad people either. We would have thought of them as like the best church members. They would have been the best church members. Uh, really good people. So how, how does he give this, this, this picture of religion where the, the immoral person who's really immoral, it's not a pretty woman thing, it's not like, oh, deep down he has a heart of gold. You know, if you just really knew the tax collector, I think if he just had someone who believed in him, he'd be great. He's not great. He's a complete scoundrel. He's the guy that goes to church and is received by God, and the morally responsible person is rejected. Is there a moral equivalence there? Like to be an extortioner and an adulterer is uh, the same thing as just being somebody who struggles a little bit with, with being immodest, <laughs> you know, a little proud of themselves? Those, those like moral equivalents? And uh, Jesus would say, yeah, they kind of are. Um, actually, the self-justifier is worse off morally than the extortioner or the adulterer. The self-justifying person um, has deeper problems with God and with other people than the adulterer or the extortionist. And 
you know this if you think about it. Because uh, think about some of the greatest evils that human beings can commit. Think about genocidal situations. In Rwanda, uh, when Hutus and Tutsis uh, treat each other as abominably as human beings can treat each other, they don't do that immediately or instinctively. It takes buildup of contempt by calling the other cockroaches for a good while before that contempt can boil over into actual murder. Right? It's contempt, though, that leads to genocide. The Germans couldn't just uh, begin exterminating Jews until they had for a long time called them rats, holding them in contempt. And that contempt leads to some of the greatest human evil we've ever seen. So it's not just in our relationship with God that self-justifying pride and contempt are serious moral problems. It's true in our relationships with each other too. But um, when it comes to God, self-justifying pride is basically putting yourself in God's place. I'll be my own Lord and Savior. Thank you very much. I don't need God's grace. I don't need Jesus to be my Savior. I'm fine. I'll be my own God. And so that creates massive problems because the Christian religion is a religion of grace. Right? It's where what we have from God is absolutely given to us undeservedly as a free gift. What Jesus did wins God's favor for us. Uh, his behavior is why God blesses us, not because we're good people. And if you indulge in contempt and self-justifying pride, you cloud up the idea of God's grace. And it creates real problems for you spiritually. Probably means you're going to be someone who is pretty cold-hearted, uh, someone who doesn't have a lot of joy in your connection to God, uh, somebody who um, is reluctant to pray, except kind of in the way the Pharisee did, sort of reading his resume to God. Um, and it's going to cut you off from other people uh, and coldness too, because you're going to be judgmental and contemptuous. So here's my real problem with this parable is uh, I know the truth that Jesus is talking about here. That in the Christian life, everything comes as a gift of grace. If you gave me a theology test, I would do great on it. I have done great on theology tests, right? I know the biblical idea of grace and can argue it well and can explain it fairly clearly. And knowing that has not done one thing to touch my contemptuous heart. I know that I'm not able to justify myself, but only Jesus can justify me before God. And yet I'm still shot through with contempt. I've had to think about it all week. And I mean, it's like every five minutes I'm thinking, ah, oh, I'm just sitting here, you know, either spinning my own resume or... Uh, tearing somebody else down in contempt in my mind all the time. And that's when I'm not doing it out loud. And so what do you do if you have a contemptuous heart? You kind of know what's right, but you still find yourself being inveterate as a self-justifier. Because um, it's hard. This, I'll give you an example of uh, why it's hard from uh, Walk the Line. You remember the Johnny Cash biography, biographical movie they did? Joaquin Phoenix played Johnny Cash, which is a pretty tough role, and he did it pretty well, I think. He was, he was uh, preparing to do his uh, concert at San Quentin Prison, and uh, his manager was trying to talk him out of it. And he said, John, your fans are church folk. 
And uh, Christians don't want to hear you singing to a bunch of murderers and rapists trying to cheer them up. And Cash answered, maybe apocryphally, I don't know, it was a good answer. He said, uh, well, then they're not Christians. Uh, okay, you know, that, that's clear, right? That's the notion. That we don't hold other people in contempt, but we see ourselves, our own moral problems and failures, as more serious than other people's, or at least as serious as other people's. So what do you do if you've got a contemptuous heart? You realize when you, when you read this passage, this is the law that Jesus is describing. This is God's law. You are not supposed to hold people in contempt and justify yourself. Now, what can the law do for you? Can the law hold up a mirror to you and tell you who you really are? Yeah, it does. It says your contempt and self-justification are a serious problem. Um, can it diagnose your issues? Can it show you how much you need Jesus? Yes. Can send you running to Him. Can it fix you? No. Law can never fix you. The law is never medicine. It's always just diagnostic. So you see in this, yeah, I understand what contempt is. I'm seeing what self-justification is in my life, but the law itself doesn't give you any power to change. It points you to Jesus who can change you. And that's probably where the disconnect comes between knowing what's right and actually seeing your heart of contempt start to melt. So that's what it does. When you, uh, when you roll your eyes or when you sneer, or when you just give that blank look of disdain, staring at somebody who's uh, acting the idiot. Um, these are signs for you. Warning signs, indicator lights on your dashboard that say you're holding people in contempt, which means that you have a self-justification problem. So those are pretty easy things to notice. It's usually hard to tell when you're being proud. Rolling your eyes is easy to know. You can tell when you're rolling your eyes. Cut those eyes. Don't you roll your eyes at me. You know, you know how parents talk. They see it in kids' faces. Um, these are indicators for you uh, that you have a self-justification problem. So when you're rolling your eyes at somebody, you don't just say, oh, yeah, I should be more polite. No, you say, no, I should be less self-justifying. I'm holding myself up to a standard and holding you in contempt in a way that is a humongous moral problem that I need to deal with. It's what God's law does for us. It opens, it opens the curtains on what's deep inside of us. And what it means that you have to do is uh, you have to learn to repent differently. Um, try to explain this well. Usually we think about repenting as changing the things that we know are bad that we shouldn't do. Right? Most everybody has stuff that they'd change about themselves if they could. I wish I was less angry. I wish I was less lustful. I wish I was less greedy. Um, those are things I don't even like about myself. I know God doesn't like them either. I should change. I hope God will help me change. But Jesus comes and He says, there's a whole other set of stuff that you need to change that you don't want to change at all. These are the things that you probably like best about yourself. These are the things that you do to justify yourself, to make you feel assured that you are better than other people, that you are a good person, that you are superior. These are your religious practices. These are your moral high ground things. These are the, um, the secret things that you do that others don't see uh, that are noble and magnanimous. 
Well, I come early to set up at church. Nobody sees, but I do it. I'm a servant, yeah. A lot of people notice and they mention to me how impressed they are that I'm a servant at church. While I'm setting things up in the morning and, you know, before the service, I'm thinking, you know, I wonder why other people don't come and help. You know, I mean, 90%, you know, 10% of the people do 90% of the work in church. That's the way it always is. But I'm here at least serving, setting up, helping. Yes, you're welcome. Yes, thank you. I know I'm a good, I'm a good servant at church. It's good to be a servant. Help set up at church, right? It's uh, ridiculously problematic to hold other people in contempt and justify yourself because of it. And honestly, this is the stuff of Christianity, is that you have to deal with these motivational things. You're not just trying to be a good little boy and fool God and other people that you're good. You need mercy and you need repentance and change in these deep areas of the heart. And these are not things that you can just try to set goals and buckle down and do and discipline yourself to say, I'm going to be less contemptuous from now on. Just watch me. Because even if you managed to not roll your eyes as much and not be as spiteful, you'd be so stinking proud of yourself for it that you'd be harder and harder to live with because you'd be thinking, wow, not very contemptuous anymore. That's pretty awesome. right? Other people should be less contemptuous like I am. I mean, it's insidious stuff. It can only change if Jesus helps you change. I had a friend, have a friend, he just doesn't do this anymore. Rob Bailey, uh, he's a good friend. Uh, he used to walk around with me, and whenever I would say something contemptuous, which turned out to be pretty often, he would say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. You know, and he'd fill in the blank with whoever I was dogging at the time. And uh, he did it a lot <laughs> because he had a lot of material to work with. Um, Usually you don't have anybody who is either willing to do that or able to do it without you hating them in your life. And you're kind of on your own recognizance when it comes to contempt. Um, again, your facial expressions are a help. You, you realize when you relax every muscle in your face in total disdain and just stare at somebody who's acting the fool. Or when you roll your eyes at somebody. When you sneer at somebody. I don't, I don't think people sneer as much as they used to. <laughs> but... It's a disdainful, a contemptuous facial expression. I'm going I'm to give you a suggestion. I don't usually like to be practical. You know me. Um, but you know the Eastern Orthodox Church, the, the Greek and Russian Orthodox Church? They use a thing called the Jesus Prayer a lot. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And uh, in a lot of the traditions of piety, they try to say it as often as they can to try to have a present mind of... Uh, relationship to God and connection to Him through the day. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And um, I've always wondered if, if it doesn't get, if it's the repetition uh, changes its usefulness over time and things. I don't know. I'm sure it's very helpful. But what I'm going to recommend is try to discipline yourself when you feel your eyes rolling or your disdain face coming on uh, to stop and quickly, briefly pray the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, as a way of checking yourself to say, I, I don't want to live with contempt. I don't want to try to justify myself. Uh, I want to depend on the mercy of Jesus. So use the Jesus prayer that way. I have a feeling if I do that, it's going to be about as repetitive as someone who does it all the time in the Eastern Church anyway, because I'm shot through with contempt. But 
Learning to recognize it is a beginning step so you can go to Jesus and seek mercy and seek change. You know, you, contempt it's a very hard thing to try to deal with. It's something God has to do. Um, think about it in a marriage. It's, uh, it's one of the most destructive things in a marriage to hold each other in contempt. John Gottman, the psychologist, calls it the kiss of death in a marriage. It's when one spouse or both begin to hold the other in contempt. He says he's pretty hopeful with marriage problems up until that point, but when he sees contempt, he says it's very, very rare for people to come back from it. What in the world do you do or would you do if you find that you have contempt in your heart toward your spouse? How could you change that? Um, it feels instinctive. It doesn't feel like a choice. It just feels like a settled conviction that you've got. They are this way. They behave this way. I despise them for it. Well, here's the only hope I know is that when you feel contempt, you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because that prayer has embedded in it the conviction that the real problem in my marriage is my contempt. Not what my spouse does that irritates me. That my contempt versus her uh, behavior that I don't like is not even a close fight. That my contempt is the heavy, huge problem in the marriage. I'm the problem. It's my contemptuous attitude. It's my self-justifying attitude, not the things that I'm bothered by in my spouse. In another place, Jesus called this uh, taking the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's. Right? That's basically saying, in this conflict, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I believe that contempt and self-justification are worse problems than what my spouse is doing. And when Jesus says, humble yourself, uh, because whoever humbles himself will be exalted, this is humbling. To take the log out of your own eye in conflict is really humbling. Um, but this is what we're called to as Christians. And it's what God's law teaches us is what is morally weighty and what is not morally weighty. Our contempt is very weighty morally. And it's a huge problem in our relationships. If you're looking for a spouse, I would say uh, watch out for contempt. If you're dating someone who holds other people in contempt very easily, it's, it's likely to hold you in contempt eventually. Very likely to hold your children in contempt eventually. A lot of people have uh, married Pharisees and just wilted under the pressure of contempt and self justification that comes from Pharisees. But if you got kids, who do you want them to marry? Tax collectors or Pharisees? <laughs> Pharisees, right? Responsible people, generous people, church people. But beware of contempt. So, how do you teach your kids about contempt? Um, usually you don't, I think. Um, it's hard to get at it in somebody else. I mean, they're, they're arguing in the back seat. Hey, shut up! <laughs> Be nice. Be still. Stay on your side. You say that. But then you turn back around and drive. And that's when the kids start making the faces, right? You know, rolling their eyes. That's when the contempt comes out, but you don't even see that. And... Uh, the kids don't yell from the back seat, Mom, he's being contemptuous of me. <laughs> they don't say that. They say he's on my side. But how do you, how do you coach for uh, contempt problems with your children? 
it's hard. You just tell them, you can't go over to the sleepover at the Pharisee's house. They're, they're contemptuous. <laughs> no, you say, you can't go to sleepovers at the tax collector's house. Oh, no, you can't go there. You send your kids to the Pharisee's house anytime, right? They're fine. They're good people. But for church kids, contempt is probably the hardest temptation they're going to face. It's going to be one of their biggest problems morally. And, uh, you know, what are they going to say when they grow up and are cold-hearted in their religion and impossible to live with? Well, I fell in with a contemptuous crowd. You know, that's what happens. Say this, if if you're a church kid, and I would guess Ian and Cecilia, this feels specifically to you. (laughs) <laughs> the only ones in here right now. But it's probably on you to work on these things yourself. Your parents love you and want you to not be contemptuous and not to despise other people and brag on yourself. But um, these are you're not ever going to get sent to the principal's office for contempt. Right? Um, you're going to have to sort this out yourself. And if you want a real relationship with God that's not just you following your parents to church, then you're going to have to deal with God on things like this. Do I despise other people? Do I criticize them easily? Do I mock them? Uh, do I think I'm better? And dealing with those things before God will get you into a real relationship with God. So, be good if you could find a friend like Rob Bailey who will walk around and tell you, thank you that I'm not like other men when he hears you popping off, but mostly you're going to have to figure it out yourself. Well, look, here's the point. The point is not to try to be less contemptuous. The point is to abandon your project of self-justification. Stop trying to justify yourself and look to Jesus to justify you. Depend on His mercy instead of your good record for your justification. And do it day to day, not just in some beginning of the Christian life, oh, I didn't realize that before thing, but in an every day, oh yeah, I'm being contemptuous because I want to self-justify and I can't. Only Jesus can justify me. You have to think about that quite regularly and come back to it quite regularly. Um, because everything, everything in a relationship with God comes from God's grace through Jesus. Now the good news in this is Jesus tells this parable because he thinks contemptuous people can change. Right? He's not just saying it to shame you. He's saying it because you can change. You can, you can turn away from self-justification and be justified by Jesus. And think how, how sweet that could be. It could free you from spinning in your conversations where you don't have to insert your resume items into every conversation to make sure people think well of you. It could free you from dwelling over and over again on somebody's criticism of you. It could free you from laying awake at night, grinding your teeth about the faint praise that you received. I went to a a men's conference one time. I was the speaker at the men's conference. And uh, then I went back to that church a couple of weeks later and their pastor said, hey, I want to thank you again for coming to speak at the men's conference. You were easily the top two speakers we've ever had at our conference. Okay, what are you... I'm clearly second is what that means. And so all I can think about is not, that was nice of him to thank me and compliment me. It was like, what do you mean second? Really? You know, I'm Ricky Bobby all of a sudden. <laughs> if you ain't first, you're last. Yeah? And, uh, it's, but it's going, it's faint praise because I'm a self-justifier. You can be free of those kind of things. Uh, that can just be funny instead of galling. Right? Think if you could stride through life uh, without having to make sure people were impressed with you. I mean, 
you'd be like some demigod walking around because you're secure in the love that Jesus has for you and you don't have to prove it to anybody. It would be marvelous, right? Think if you could have joy in your religion when you weren't having to calculate all the time about whether you'd been good enough for God to answer your prayers or not, but that you could actually just bask in knowing that He's delighted in you and He's not uh, disappointed in you all the time and He's not looking for you to shape up and prove yourself. He's not ashamed of you. That would be deeply sweet, wouldn't it? And all that is the fruit of being justified by Jesus instead of trying to justify yourself. So, um, I sent out the quote in the front of the bulletin, um, the song by T-Bone Burnett. It's a riff on G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown character. you know Father Brown? Any of you? Are any of you well-raised enough? Thank you, Luke. And uh, Father Brown's M.O., he's a priest who's an amateur sleuth. And so he's always involved in solving crimes because in the little tiny parish he lives in, people are murdered every day. And, uh, but his M.O. is this. He's, instead of, when he's trying to figure out who did it, he says, he first thinks, I'm a sinner like anybody else. I'm as corrupt as anybody else. Under what circumstances would I have committed this crime? And then he works back from that deductively to try to figure out who did it. It's a very Christian way to approach things, right? Because he recognizes himself and the perpetrator. I was going to read the Father Brown quote, but it's dense and long. So I put that T-Bone Burnett song in the front of the bulletin. This was back in the early 90s. He wrote this song. Um, I've seen a lot of criminals. I've seen a lot of crime doing a lot of evil deeds, doing a lot of time. When we speak of these men as aliens from some forbidden race, we speak of these men as animals we'll lock in a cage. But then he starts talking about another criminal down toward the end of the song. He says there's no crime he can't commit, no murder too complex. His heart is filled with larceny and violence and sex. His heart is filled with envy and revenge and greed. His heart is filled with nothing. His heart is filled with need. He's capable of anything, of any vicious act. This criminal is dangerous. The criminal under my own hat. Now that's a Christian song. Someone who knows himself to be abjectly in need of Jesus' mercy. But when you start to recognize the criminal under your own hat, then you can start to recognize the beauty of Jesus' mercy that He shows to the very worst of people. And when you feel the mercy He shows to the very worst of people, then your heart of contempt will start to melt. Now let's pray.